Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Screen Talk is now available on iTunes. You can head there to subscribe to the weekly show, and you can send us feedback on Twitter. I'm at Eric Cohn, and Ann Thompson is at AK Stanwyck. Welcome, everybody, to the latest edition of Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the chief film critic in IndieWire. I'm still in Switzerland for the Locarno Film Festival and joined from around the globe. Ann Thompson is in Los Angeles. How are things over there, Ann? Good, good. The summer is quiet. And you know what? We're heading into the fall festival season. So things it's, it's almost like everybody's trying to catch their breath before they hit the, the ground running on uh, Labor Day weekend. It's true. I mean, I'm about to go off on vacation for a week, and when I get back, it's just bam, bam, bam. We have the Telluride Film Festival on Labor Day weekend, the Toronto Film Festival, the New York Film Festival. And while if you, you know some people are just going to see these movies when they open in theaters, I think for us, it's going to all of a sudden radically change the conversation about you know not just Oscar season, but just the kinds of movies that are out there. I mean, all of a sudden, the way that people go to the movies in that time of the year just seems like it it takes on a totally different identity. Let's turn first to, I think, probably the biggest headline item of, of the week. Uh, before we get into things, some other, you know, industry items involving the distribution world, movies opening in theaters, we really have to deal with the two major figures from our world that we lost this week, Robin Williams and Lauren Bacall. Now, it was a really strange moment for me because I'm uh, six hours ahead of New York, nine hours ahead of Los Angeles. I was out at this loud outdoor bar, 10, 11 o'clock, something like that, the other night. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> I heard that Robin Williams died. Mm-hmm. And the contrast you know, between sort of the, the, the energy surrounding me and hearing news like that was particularly radical, given that it was such extreme news. But it also made me realize, you know, it's like it's very easy to kind of get lost in the rhythm of what you do and take certain things for granted. And it, when I first heard that Robin Williams died, you know, that that was one of those moments where it just didn't seem real to me. You know, that, that I, I thought because of this person's work that I had a certain familiarity with him where I couldn't fully accept that this was happening. And I went back and processed it a little bit more and did some writing about it. And what I realized is that there's something about William's work where we have always taken him for granted, I think, as meaning most audiences, as, as a very jolly performer. But there's a melancholic element 
to what he's done that's, that may have been there all along and yet is, is done under the guise of comedy so well that, that we don't fully process it. Well, one of the things that struck me was, was how young he was when he started. I, I don't think I quite realized 63 is young, but he's been around for a really long time as a top major star. He, he elevated himself instantly at the beginning of his career from, you know, stand-up to, uh, you know, the, the Happy Days introduction of Mork and then Mork and Mindy. And then he went into a movie career. And one of the things that struck me was that some of the best performances were at the beginning of his career as a movie star. And he became a very, very big movie star for a period in the 80s, basically, and the early 90s. But there was also this allegiance that he had to um that may have been a bad thing because he ended up becoming a studio player and so some of his best roles like garp or like goodwill hunting which is the only time he he actually uh was nominated for for an oscar you know he basically was playing these big big bigger than life uh comedic roles in big budget movies and and often not so good ones and i was just struck by how how difficult it was for him was going for the for the paycheck instead of the quality of of the films yeah i I mean i think that that was definitely one of the elements that was unfortunate about the way that his career progressed the other thing that i was thinking about is that maybe the the kind of material that robin williams thrived with was very rare and his need to keep working was not so rare, and so there was right. something out of sync. What I focused on when I wrote was one of his last really interesting roles, at least from my perspective, uh, Bobcat Goldthwait's World's Greatest Dad, which was... Another indie, again. Indie. Yeah, and also... Or, and one, and, tw- and, and the, the, what is it, 24-hour 20, photo? Or, right. Was that the name of that book? Because that was, that was uh, an it, excellent movie. That, that's one-hour photo, which is one actually has been squeezed on to the Locarno program and is showing, as, as we're recording this, outside on this outdoor screen of the, the Piazza Grande Locarno because it played at the festival in 2002 in competition. So, you know, that was a, another interesting one where he certainly had, you know, sh- showed a certain tendency towards more complicated projects. Uh, but, I, you know, I went back and I looked at some of his um, stand-up, and, and one of the things that I realized was that, you know, he is kind of like his own editor. You know, he, he veers off in all these different directions, and it's really hard for movies to contain that kind of energy. And so I think, you know, kind of the, the legacy of Robin Williams in some ways is much stronger than any individual project. And so that's sort of what's so difficult to process about that death is that we know we lost an amazing talent, but we can't fully reconcile it with, you know, what we saw over the course of that career. I agree with you about the melancholy, though. If you think about, you know, the Fisher King or you think about the, the role that he played in, in Goodwill Hunting, you know, you, you, or even Moscow and the Hudson, there's a sadness to him that does come through, especially in his more dramatic roles. Now, I also think that with, you know, the sort of reminiscences that are out there now, it's going to take a while for people to fully process what they've lost. Whereas, you know, with Lauren Bacall dying, I mean, this was somebody whose legendary status had been assured for years. So, you know, what was uh, your relationship to her work? I mean, was do, do you see that as a similar kind of shock, even though she, you know, obviously hadn't been working for a while? 
Well, no, I mean, she got an honorary Oscar in 2009, and and Kirk Douglas presented to her, and they had been pals at the American Academy of Art, you know, back in dramatic arts back in the day, and and she had helped him out when he was poor and got him a a, a thicker overcoat, you know, and, 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 you know, she was a character. What struck me about her, I mean, in the sense that Howard Hawks, uh, discovered her in Harper's Bazaar modeling and, and, and brought her in um, to star into Have and Have Not, where she legendarily, you know, uttered those, uh, put your two lips together and, and put your lips together and blow the great, the great line. It's been repeated by everyone because it's iconic, because it was the most extraordinary. You know, you, you look at it again and it's so sexy, you know, and, and even Humphrey Bogart, who's the coolest customer who ever lived, you know, he's like looking at her like, who is this creature? Who is she? You know, and you could sort of watch him falling in love with her. But Howard Hawks fashioned her as a, 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 a sort of more um, as beautiful and luscious as she was. She was slim which was the name of Howard Hawks' own uh, wife. You know, there was a real woman named Slim Hawks. And, and, and Humphrey Bogart always called her Slim after that. And, and she was a... Lauren Bacall was a fully-blown character person in her own right as Lauren Bacall, beyond what she was on film. She was always Lauren Bacall. And she wasn't necessarily the greatest actress who ever lived, but she was a great movie star, a great movie star personality. And she went on to create her own book by myself, which was very good, written very well, very witty, very funny, very tough. And at the end, um, in the 80s, after she had done her Broadway uh, resurgence in, in, in Applause and, and Woman of the Year, I worked on a movie called The Fan in 1980, and she was the star, and she was playing a woman, an older woman, who, who was on, on Broadway and being stalked by the young Michael Bean, you know, sort of Terminator-era Michael Bean. And, and she, um, she was tough. You worked on this movie as a publicist? A unit publicist. It was my first job as a, as a unit publicist. I was very young. I want everyone to know. I was extremely young. Was it difficult and to be around somebody like that who was so iconic? She was tough. You had to know your stuff. She did not suffer fools. So is, is there anybody today who we could say is sort of a, a next generation Bacall? Or is that sort of a, she was a different era? I would almost there. compare her to Julia Roberts in a funny way. Hmm. I, that's the that person who just popped into my head. You know that smile that 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 Julia Roberts is Julia Roberts in every movie that she that she does, and she is Julia Roberts off screen in a very. She's very smart. She's very self assured. She's very confident. Uh, you know she doesn't she doesn't suffer fools either, and she's a big movie star. Um, and I don't think she ever uh, apologizes for for anything. And 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 you know I, I just think. But ultimately, Bacall herself knew that the when she did die, all of those eulogies and and obits and pieces would would focus on her films and her relationship with Humphrey Bogart. And that is true. Right. Well, I mean, it's also an interesting sort of thing where, you know, now now I assume that 
people are more skeptical of that kind of fame or taking those kinds of steps into certain projects, you know, at, at, at earlier stages of their careers. Here in Locarno, I saw a really interesting comedy. Uh, it's uh, Bosnian called Love Island. And uh, it's sort of a, a, a sex romp of sorts. And the, the main actress is a, is a French woman who's based in Greece named Ariane Labed, who is more recently in a film called Attenberg that got some good reviews on the festival circuit and Alps uh, from Yorgos Lanthimos, who made Dogtooth. And I ended up speaking to her for a little while because one of the things I noticed was this was somebody who had done a couple of sort of obscure art films that had gotten relatively limited releases in the United States. And then in this sort of broader comedy, it seemed like this person was making an effort to, you know, venture out and, you know, try more accessible stuff, which made me wonder, okay, so now we're going to see her as, you know, a Bond girl or something. And I asked her about that. I said, is is that the direction you want to go now? And she said, no, I mean, I wanted to try something that could get to more people but I'm not going to Hollywood and taking meetings because that's just not the kind of system I want to be associated with. And I, I just wondered if, you know, in when Bacall was coming up, if people could even afford to be that kind of picky, you know. No, they were much more part of the of the studio uh, system, you know. You, you, you did what you were told more than more than anything. That's why I think it's sort of remarkable that she, you know, it's inter- there's an interesting story that Ed Hawks, um, tried to fashion Jean Arthur as as this kind of uh, girl, you know, this tougher, sort of more masculine girl. The look the, that that was the, the thing that Bacall was, was known for was right. partly her own, um, you know, response to, to Howard Hawks and wanted her to do. And, and, and Jean Arthur saw to have and have not after she had done Only Angels Have Wings and realized that that she should have followed Hawk's direction. Right. He was <laughs> he wasn't like a Hitchcock type of, you know, controlling his, his women to that sort of extreme degree. He had a very particular idea in mind about how they should register on screen. Yes, and he wanted them to be to be sexy, by the way. That I'm not I'm I I don't know how to explain it. I mean you, if you think about the way that um Angie Dickinson was in, in Rio Bravo. There's a certain self-possession and and um, aut- autonomy that that the women have at the same time that they're extremely sexy, and and that was something I think that that Hawks admired in in Slim and applied. Um, and, and some of it's Jules Furthman, some of it's his his writer. You know, it's 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 not just, but Bacall became that perfect um, iconic Hawks woman. So having explored all of that and, and uh, kind of touched on the the kind of machine that this actress had to work with, I think we should turn to the space that we work in right now, which is obviously there's it's a very different kind of system in terms of the way that movies get made. And it seems like every week we're hearing about somebody trying something different. Um, so let, let's touch on uh, this, this latest announcement about a new distribution company that was created this week because it seems uh, sort of relevant to some of the things we were talking about in the sense that nobody really wants to do the same old thing anymore. So do you want to uh, kind of lay out what, what this uh, news item was? Well, Bleecker is, is a new company that's been formed out of New York, and it's obviously uh, Bleecker Street is an iconic New York uh, street down in the village, uh, which used to have a cinema where I worked when I was in college, when I was at NYU. 
Bleecker Street Cinema. Um, so Andrew Carpen, who was the COO and co-CEO of uh, the James Seamus run uh, Focus Features, which we were sad to see uh, break up recently, recently and be taken over by um, Peter Schlesel. Um, so Carpen, who had been, you know, very capable executive there, has, has started, you know, so there's a hole, there's a gap in the uh, distribution universe that he is seeking to to fill, and and he, I'm I'm optimistic because uh, you know the first films that he's you know one of them he's gonna he he made a deal with a producer who's supplying three films. One of them is Trumbo, you know, which is about Dalton Trumbo. Right, Jay Roach is directing. Um, there's an Al Pacino film that looks interesting. They look like the kinds of films that Focus used to do: intelligent, perhaps you know, uh, hopefully awards were. The, uh, the kinds of movies that, that you know, like Atonement or, or Milk, you know, the, or the, the kinds of films that Focus used to do. So I'm very pleased that he's going into Toronto. He's obviously looking for acquisitions. Um, whether it's a new model is another question, Eric. Do you have reason to believe that it is? It looks to me like a the, the standard issue um, theatrical, uh, independent, specialty-oriented uh distribution company well I, I mean it's impossible to say exactly and, and certainly every time somebody starts a new company these days they have to improvise around whatever sort of changes are taking place in the marketplace but what I think is interesting about it is that Universal determined for one reason or another that the direction that Focus was taking wasn't working and that was partly associated at least from the outside, it looked like it was associated with the fact that they their movies weren't all doing that well. And so it makes me wonder if, you know, this is sort of like Focus 2.0. They're going to take the same kind of sensibilities and maybe do it a little bit better in terms of the success rate. But, you know, it's well, the difficulties really... there... I'm, I'm sure you're. I'm sure that's true. The difficulty. What's interesting about Focus is that is that in a because I used to talk to Seamus and Carpen and sort of ask them pointed questions, just as like like I used to talk to Daniel Batsik when he was running uh, what was left of of Miramax after the Weinstein brothers left at, at at Disney. Is that when these companies are inside a corporate parent, um, and and focus had the advantage of this huge foreign sales operation and foreign distribution operation, uh, which was pretty successful, um, is, that the, the, is that the corporation is demanding certain numbers and certain thresholds and certain crunching. And, and sometimes, you know, um, even though they have output deals and they have all the advantages of the studios, uh, they're, they're almost put in a box in terms of what they can take on, especially in a complicated marketplace. Now, roadside attractions over at Lionsgate has more flexibility for partnerships, for lower-budgeted films, for different kinds of uh, arrangements, um, for uh, VOD arrangements. Um, and, and so does, um, uh, what would be the other example? You know, Weinstein Co. can do all sorts of different, they can skin the cat in lots of different ways as an independent and they're trying to adapt to the to the new world. So I'll be curious to see what this company does. The new focus, by the way, uh, which let go of a lot of its key players. So I'm curious to see how many of them turn up on staff. You know, someone like Joe Foley, the distribution chief, or or some of the other from that department that were let go because they closed down the New York office. I, I would have to assume that that Carpen is going to look at some of those executives as he as he staffs up. The only reason he announced this so early. Uh, was because he was heading for Toronto. 
course, and it'll be, we'll have more to uh, revisit about that after the festival ends to see sort of what got picked up by who. And, you know, every time there's a new player in town, it does seem to kind of shake things up, at least because, you know, there's a little bit more competition and other kinds of this, possibilities. This will give uh, some of these other people that I just mentioned, he, he could compete with them, assuming he has deep enough pockets. That's a, another, another question. And also... Um, you know, is he going to make a big play for a big buy to put himself on the market or, you know, because he's going to be competing with these more like Sony Pictures Classics is sort of top of the walk, cock of the walk right now. Um, they've got so much going for this point, um, almost too much, almost too many films in awards play and, and so on, because the New York Film Festival had a, uh, finally announced its its. Um, final roster of, of, of their selection and and there were so many Sony films in there that some of them were left out you know that we would have expected right. which are probably the foreign uh, Oscar contenders like um, uh, I would say that that Wild Tales which I loved and will play very well wherever it plays right. uh, from Argentina and uh, Leviathan the Russian film you know, they they may just be, be going to a later film festival instead of New York. And they may also want to tell you right exactly, as well. which yeah. is something we'll dig into next week. Uh, but let's step away from the film festival world for a second here because I also want us to touch on TV. Uh, there's a new show called Outlander with an interesting story associated with it, and you've been following that, so do you want to bring us up to speed there? Yeah, no, I, I really um, have to say <laughs> that it, it's a guilty pleasure of a certain kind. You know, it's another example. It's on stars. Um, so you've got two new series that one of them is um, obviously, we've talked about this, the Steven Soderbergh series, The Nick, which is on Cinemax. So you've got, um, this is a, a great example of how of how these cable companies use um, alluring original programming as a, you know, to, to say you've got to subscribe if you want to see this. You know, you can't get away with it. So um, so Cinemax instead of HBO, uh, so that you have to subscribe to that if you want to see The Nick, and, and the same is true of, of, uh, of Outlander. Outlander is appealing very much to women. It's It takes a, con- uh, a woman from 40s, sort of post-World War II, uh, Britain on vacation in, in Scotland with her husband sort of trying to heal their war wounds and get back together as a husband and wife. Um, it reminds me a little bit of, of, of um, I know where I'm going or, or um, that kind of, you know, uh, haunting Scottish uh, landscape. And then, and then she's, she somehow is, is, hanging out in the wrong place at the wrong time in a sort of Stonehenge uh, location and goes back to um, uh, back in time, sort of like the Sherwood Ring of, 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 of sort of a famous gothic romantic uh, novel or, or Jack Finney's Time and Again, which took you from the Dakota into period New York. And so she's, she's having to, so you have a contemporary uh, capable nurse you know, very well acted. Um, I don't know any of these actors, by the way. They're not people I'm familiar with, and 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 it's quite it's quite uh, well done. It has elements of Games of Thrones, uh, Game of Thrones, in in the uh, you know sort of 
warriors on horseback in the landscape uh, kind of thing. But well, that certainly doesn't surprise me, and the, and the posters really do play that up, which, you know, it's, it's obviously something you kind of have to do right now, but it's interesting to hear you say that that's actually accurate, because I was yeah. wondering. No, they're marketing it that way more yeah. than anything. So that's another, another, you know, this is Emmy season. This is the time of year when when you, you've got a lot of uh, queries about, you know, how, how some of these shows that we all uh, love are going to do with, with Emmy voters. And it's, I often find it very difficult to figure that out. So right. I'm still playing catch up on a lot of these uh, TV series as I try to get, get ahead of the, of, of the, uh, of the awards. Well, I don't want to usurp the authority of our TV team in LA, and they'll certainly be doing a lot of Emmy coverage, but I will say that one show that is in contention for a few categories that I really liked is Fargo, the FX show. I don't know if you had a chance to watch that one. That's my favorite one. That's of, of, the, of all the new shows. Of the, of, of, now, I, I confess that I've not gotten through uh, Orange is the New Black, and I know a lot of people seem to think that's a favorite, but uh, the one I did get through very happily was Fargo. But it's I, brilliant. It's I didn't brilliant. finish Orange is the New Black either. I felt like the second season wasn't nearly as strong, and uh, there's a certain kind of tendency for people to embrace a show that they love based on characters, and I think that's what's sort of allowed this one to remain still beloved but it just felt much weaker to me the second time around whereas the Far- Fargo is an incredibly well-paced piece of storytelling irrespective of the medium that it's in and you it's know? incredibly well acted um some of the best I mean, stuff that Billy Bob Thornton has done maybe ever I mean it's just a no question he deserves although it. I I wonder if he, if he ends up winning it it happens to be up against all right that you know they have all these weird categories and everything so that you have limited versus mini series and so forth and so it's it's sort of an interesting question of of who's up against who um, and and I, I a lot of people think it's Billy Bob. It's just a complete mystery to me. As much as I enjoy watching Downton Abbey, you know, why would that show be taken seriously as a contender? Yeah. I don't. It's get a, that it's a unique ball. phenomenon, I think, with TV as opposed to to film. Is that even if you have an off season, if there's certain things that remain consistent, it's still in the conversation. Unless you really bomb hard you know there's a there's a fan contingency that plays a role here uh but obviously you know we can't fully analyze this until the awards are out so we're um, we're getting ahead of ourselves let's uh turn to movies that are opening this week because we certainly have some of those to talk about do you want to uh share your recommendation yeah i'm going for a documentary that that actually opened limited already but it's going wider in more cities this week which is called Rich Hill, and some people are comparing it to Boyhood in a way, as though this were a sort of real-life uh, version. And the way the reason they're doing that is it's set in this very depressed sort of Missouri um, area called Rich Hill, and it's a portrait of a few very poverty-stricken boys in various kinds of trouble, um, not of their own making, but mostly of the people who are raising them. And uh, it won some awards at, at Sundance, and it's extraordinarily well made observed you know the kind of thing where the filmmakers embedded themselves with these kids and and there's just one boy who's so beautiful and so gifted and so athletic and he's trying so hard they mean well his parents but they can't seem to stay ahead 
and it just gets worse and worse, and and the poor kid just gets dragged down. So my pick for the week is another sort of downbeat but very beautiful movie, uh, and that's uh, Philippe Garel's Jealousy. Uh, it's uh, Garel is a French filmmaker who hasn't had a lot of movies released in the United States, but he's been making films for well over. 30 years, and uh, the film starts his son, Louis Garel, who's kind of a stud in France, also not particularly well-known in the United States, although some people may recognize his face from various different projects, including uh, Heartbeats from the the Quebecois director, Xavier Dolan. But Jealousy, it's a a very simple movie in certain ways, but it's it's very powerful. It's this black-and-white story about... Uh, an actor who tries to make his girlfriend into a star of sorts and um, eventually their relationship falls apart. It's like 70-something minutes, and in some ways it's been described as Garel's most accessible work, which is sort of fascinating because it's it's an art film in, in certain ways. It follows those tropes. It's very, you know, kind of the, this dreary relationship drama, and yet there, there's something about its simplistic element that makes the emotional access point almost universal. Um, and it's rare to see a movie like that that's, on the one hand, very austere and almost cerebral in the way that it expresses a, a sense of isolation as a relationship falls apart, and yet at the same time, it, you know, it does seem like it registers on a number of different levels. And part of that is, I think, the black and white uh, cinematography that, that allows it to feel like it could be anywhere, anytime. Um, and it's, it played at the New York Film Festival, but it didn't really get too much exposure, and yet it is coming out this week, so I hope that people check it out, because uh, partly it's a terrific way to start exploring the fil- filmography of Philippe Carell, but also it's just one of the better romances we've seen in a time when that genre itself is, is sort of undervalued. So that's my pick for the week. With that in mind, I think we should uh, just sort of tease that uh, next week we're going to have a special edition where we'll be digging into uh, more movies uh, for the fall, and that's for the Telluride. Uh, until then, I'm just going to continue to wander around Europe, and uh, hopefully I'll find I'm my way I'm feeling sorry for you, right. <laughs> but uh, we've certainly got plenty to think about, and uh, the next time that we get together uh, might be in Colorado, uh, high in the mountains. So, um, and we will have that. actually seen something, hopefully. Exactly. So uh, until then, Anne, please keep things uh, safe and, and sound over in the United States. So I'll see you in a couple weeks. I feel groggy and weary and tragic, punchy and bleary and fresh out of magic, but alive, but alive, but alive. I feel twitchy and bitchy and manic, calm and collected and choking with panic, but alive, but alive, but alive. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.